Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science Podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking to the author of Public Spaces, Marketplaces, and the Constitution, Shopping Malls, and the First Amendment. The book is published by SUNY Press in 2015. I hope that you enjoy the interview that I did with the author today. Welcome back to the New Books and Political Science Podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and I have the real pleasure today to be talking in person to the author of Public Spaces, Marketplaces, and the Constitution, Shopping Malls, and the First Amendment. The book is published by SUNY Press. The author is Anthony Maniscalco. I have the real pleasure to have him here in person. Tony, how are you doing today? I'm really well, thank you. Yeah, it's so nice. Uh, I know you. You live close by. Uh, So in our conversation, we're going to be talking about New York. But before we get to New York and your book, why don't you just tell us a little bit about who you are, where you've been, where you are now. Well, thank you for the opportunity to be here today. It's great to be in the studio with you live. Uh, My name is uh, Anthony Maniscalco. As he said, uh, please call me Tony. That's how I refer to myself and how all the people close to me do so. Uh, I am a native New Yorker, a lifelong Brooklynite. And uh, I earned a PhD in political science at the CUNY Graduate Center. I currently act as the director of the CUNY-wide internship program in government and public affairs, where I am steeped in academic traditions and experiential learning. And I also will soon be taking over the helm as one of the professors in residence in the New York State Assembly internship program, The People's House. Yeah, how, how great. And uh, uh, you being from Brooklyn isn't the only reason to have you on, but I think it's a pretty good reason to have you on to, uh, to talk about um, uh, issues that, that in many ways aren't necessarily city issues. Uh, much of your focus is here on the suburbs and some of the places that, that we really associate with the suburbs, but maybe in a way that we don't normally talk or think about them. That is in terms of the Constitution and First Amendment rights. There's a lot in this book, and I think a couple of legal concepts would be important, important just to sort of start out with. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so one of those um, is this public forum doctrine. Maybe we can just get started, because uh, I think it's kind of an important one to start before we get into really what the book is about, to, to establish what, what that principle is. So tell us about the public forum doctrine. Well, you know, uh, one of the things about the study of free speech and political expression in cities and metropolitan areas is the question of place. And the Supreme Court tried to tackle the issue of place in the late 1930s when uh, the AFL, the CIO at the time, attempted to rally in uh, what we consider public spaces, streets, sidewalks, parks, and uh, a controversy erupted as to whether or not that was legally permissible. Likewise, whether uh, restrictions by uh, a sitting mayor at the time were permissible under the First Amendment. So the question was not just one about 
is free speech permissible? But the question became, where is free speech permissible? And so the court in a case called Hague against CIO was, was first confronted with whether or not this place or that place could, constitutionally speaking, be, be used by speakers expressing controversial ideas in order to find listeners. Right. Now, now in the book, you're, you're focused really on understanding spaces that aren't quite public, um, but they're not quite private either. Why shopping malls? Why are shopping malls something to be studied other than in their purely commercial uh, uh, existence, but as something else? So, so tell us about the, the, the places that, that, that you're focusing on here in the book. Well, you know, one of the th- I mean, look, I'm a city boy, right? So, you know, I, I enjoy the luxury of streets and sidewalks and parks and pedestrian plazas, etc. Um, in the suburbs, there are very few places where people can actually congregate physically. And, you know, because, you know, environmentally, it's a place where people are driving their cars, they're whizzing about, they're stopping... And then they're getting back in the car and they're going. The shopping mall, though, is one of the few places where people actually stop and for periods of time assemble. And so if you are a suburbanite wishing to express political ideas or rally people toward your cause, you're looking for listeners in the shopping mall and very few other places in a suburban milieu. So the shopping mall is an exciting place to me. I happen to walk into shopping malls and I get very jazzed about them. I think they're like little cities. They're enclosed often, uh, but and they're you know climate controlled. But there's something about them that is very urban to me. There's there's a, an opportunity to reach critical mass, uh, both socially and politically, and yes, con- and, and commercially as well, which is you know why people go. Moreover, shopping malls are shopping mall developers and owners are increasingly adding public amenities to their malls in order to make them competitive, to bring customers in, uh, to keep them there for lengthier periods of time so they buy. And in that sense, I think the shopping mall is a critically important public space, though it is privately owned, for purposes of social and political engagement. Right. And so so we have these places that um, are privately owned, but they, they essentially have an open door to invite the public in. And that's sort of the, the, the heart of the controversy is these are not purely private, meaning the, the, those that aren't invited in can't, can't do things there. And it seems to be one of the questions is it's which rights do you maintain when you're in these spaces, which are many, mm-hmm. and which rights do you give up? And the courts have been ruling on this now for decades. Um, there's a number of cases, and, and one of the ones that I wanted to start our, our discussion with is is um, the case of Marsh versus Alabama. And before we even get to the case, I wonder if you could tell us just a little bit about Chickasaw, Alabama as a town. So what what is it? Because its uh, unique characteristics are related to why it is an important uh, study and why it, uh, probably why this court reached the highest court, uh, why this case mm-hmm. reached the highest court. So tell us about Chickasaw and how it relates to the case of Marsh versus Alabama. Okay, let me just say to the listener that I'm really glad we're going place-based with this conversation because that's so much about what I want to accomplish in the book. Talking about free speech in the abstract is not enough. I think we need to talk about where 
and when, etc. So Chickasaw is in many ways the prototype for the modern shopping mall. It was a company-owned town, okay? And of course, you know, in the uh, middle of the 20th century, company-owned towns were, you know, quite uh, spread about the American landscape. It was owned by the Gulf Shipbuilding Company, so it was an industrial town built specifically to house and otherwise accommodate the workers who uh, were doing uh, industrial work for the company. All the amenities of a modern or, you know, 20th century city were included, a street, a business district, a post office, the sewer and sewers and other infrastructure that we associate with towns and cities. Um, it, in fact, invited people in, per your last point, from the outside to shop in its business district. So it wasn't just serving people from Chickasaw. It was serving outsiders who were welcome to come in because the boundaries were pretty porous. Uh, so it's really the kind of place that I would argue the model, the modern shopping mall has been, uh, you know, modeled on. And what about the case? So we, we have this situation where um, uh, the the town uh, is is essentially privately owned, mm -hmm. but but has these commercial services. Um, tell us about Marsh versus Alabama. What who is Marsh, and and how does this case ultimately test some of the concepts of private property ownership compared to First Amendment rights? So, as had many Jehovah's Witnesses uh, in the uh, post-war period, a, a woman named Grace Marsh, uh, her you know herself a Jehovah, uh, entered the business district and began to pass out leaflets, okay? Um, you know, she was just trying to, you know, support her religion uh, and try to disseminate information about her views and the views of the faith that she ascribed to. An owner, one of the uh, owners of the town, uh, in one of the stores came out to remind her about a policy that the town had that no uh, people could speak on its private property. And in fact, there were, you know, large signs and bold print saying this is private property you know uh no activities outside of those permitted will be permitted including speech she was asked to leave she balked and then she bucked and eventually she was arrested and she was prosecuted under a trespass law in the state and when that uh case eventually came to the supreme court the court was faced with whether or not her rights under the First Amendment were preferred to the right of a private property owner to exclude as he saw fit. Mm -hmm. And in the end, though it demonstrated sensitivity to property ownership and distinguished the company-owned town from, say, a street, a publicly-owned street in some city, in the end, the court said that the rights under the First Amendment given the value of freedom of expression and the need to disseminate ideas to the larger community, trumped those of the private property owner under something called the doctrine of a preferred position. Mm -hmm. So in 1946, free speech on private property was upheld in this instance. And for, for how long? The, the court seems to move back and forth around some, uh, some changing um, ideas 
about private ownership and also First Amendment rights. And there are a series of cases that sort of move the country back and forth. And we ultimately end up with the ruling, I believe, in the Robbins versus Pruneyard case um, that, that sets sort of the, the scenario for where we are now. But what, what, what happens in between that period? What's the, what's the story that, that you would tell for the, that, that 30 or 40 year time period? Well, I, th- I think one of the important things that happens is environmental, is, is geographical. In fact, suburbs begin to come online in, in incredible numbers with incredible scale right after World War II and, and, and up until, you know, the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, in fact. So you, you have this circumstance, right, this social circumstance, where more people and more places are in suburbs, okay, and you get, uh, you begin to get a doctrine where under the Warren court, with some deci- with an important decision written by Thurgood Marshall, the Grace opinion is challenged in what we would consider a conventional shopping mall, okay? Uh, not the iconic enclosed one, but something that was its uh, closer prototype in 1968. And once again, using the Marsh Doctrine, the court upheld free speech, in this case on the part of a labor union, in a privately owned shopping mall. Fast forward just four short years later, Richard Nixon gets sworn in and gets to appoint a few new members of the court and gets to realign the Supreme Court. And so we go from the Warren Court to the Burger Court in 1972, the court decided against the decision in 1968 called Logan Valley, okay, and said, well, look, the speech has to be compatible with the space in order for it to, you know, uh, pass muster under the, the First Amendment. Just four years later, as the Nixon court really begins to begins to crystallize, it throws all First Amendment rights out of the shopping mall, saying that they just don't belong here. This is private property, and private property owners who are not state actors in this uh, growing doctrine uh, can um, restrict free speech because they have a right to dispose of their property as they see fit. Right. Now, does this, does that take us up to Pruneyard? Is that, and so, and it, it seems that, um, one of the outcomes of the Pruneyard decision is, 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 um, at least offering the opportunity for states to make some interpretation mm-hmm. of these doctrines for themselves. And in the book, you, you focus on two states, New York and New Jersey, and, and the very different ways in which they have interpreted, uh, and, and made some decisions about these. And so, I wonder if you could just tell us about, um, how these two, states have have uh, emerged over time and what we can do in new jersey that that we can't do in in new york okay well and you know without without you know inundating the listener with too much about pruneyard let me say that uh with the uh free speech doctrine or the not free speech doctrine uh as it were uh in the supreme court uh and and controversy erupted in california and it raised the question of whether or not the states could interpret their constitutions and their free speech clauses, which in most cases are more positive than the negative uh, liberty in the First Amendment, whether or not they could extend free speech rights beyond the scope of the First Amendment. And so in Pruneyard, the case 
uh, the court decided that while the First Amendment is still not permitted in shopping malls, states can, as they wish, open things up further beyond the, the borders of the First Amendment and our decision-making previously. So you have a, a situation now, beginning in 1980, where the states are free to do what they want if they see fit. And over time, in my opinion, unfortunately, very few of the states have taken advantage of that license. And in fact, all but uh, five have essentially done the same thing as the Supreme Court, which is to say free, spe free speech rights do not inherit in shopping malls. The case study of New York and New Jersey is intended to show how that plays out. So in the case of New York, this bastion of liberalism, the courts here, our Court of Appeals, has said it's we're going to focus on something called the State Action Doctrine, which says our Constitution only prohibits state actors, government actors, from inhibiting the rights of citizens. Other citizens may inhibit the right of other citizens under our free speech clause. In New Jersey, just across the river, the uh, Supreme Court there has decided that, in fact, it's positive free speech liberty allows speakers to find listeners inside shopping malls. And increasingly, the New Jersey courts have come to call shopping malls public spaces with with any limits I and mean, what what are the parameters in new jersey are there we can go and and as in the marsh case give out material but but can we do more than that can we can can one hold a a, a protest in a shopping mall can one campaign for candidates in a shopping mall what are the what are the lines that have been drawn in new jersey that uh prevent this from being a a um the the private property rights of shopping mall owners being completely usurped. So, you know, while New Jersey has given uh, free, free speech a wide berth, it had always said in the two major cases that it decided that time, place, and manner rules could be imposed inside shopping malls in the very same way that they're imposed on the streets and sidewalks and other commonly thought about public spaces. So there is permission but the way in which you engage in a shopping mall may itself be regulated, though not prohibited. Mm. And so the time, place, and manner doctrine that the Supreme Court has developed and that many state courts have developed in their own versions is uh, operative in New Jersey. And it really comes down to whether or not an individual mall is going to enact its time, place, and manner rules in one way or another. Right. Now, we've t we're talking a lot about space, actual space, but I think a lot of listeners to the podcast would be very interested in the extent to which this discussion extends to virtual spaces, the kinds of virtual spaces that we often think about now is where our First Amendment, at least our speech rights, are contentious. So how does this relate um, to what is restricted and not restricted on virtual marketplaces like Amazon or Twitter or Facebook. You write at the beginning of the book about the realm of social media. Um, is this germane? Is it the same thing? Is it different? Well, the, the body of law around social media and the Internet is, is very much in progress. It, it, would, be, it would be impossible for me uh, to say what 
the doctrine is regarding social media and the internet. However, I do have a little bit of a slant on this, and I've been challenged in many cases, uh, including by my anonymous reviewers, mm -hmm. to account for the impact of virtual space. And essentially saying, look, do we really need the kinds of geographies that you're describing in the book when we have Twitter and Facebook, etc.? You know, I, I, I'm not convinced that virtual space is a panacea. I use these media. I think they're really important. We have examples. Occupy Wall Street, what happened in the Middle East in, in 2010-11, even the Tea Party, which I know you're very familiar with. There was a, a real reliance on social media to get people out, right, to get them to be in physical places where they could then impact their government through protest uh, and petitioning. I think that's very important. I just think we're on a very slippery slope if we begin to mistake virtual space for free public space, because I think there are, among other things, confirmation biases that are built into virtual media. We're essentially picking our audiences, and in many cases we're selecting people who agree with us. So I don't know that there's an opportunity for engagement with controversial ideas, okay? Um, I also wonder if we mistake virtual space for a message for uh, you know what, what some observers have said is we mistake the medium for the message when we rely on Twitter and Facebook uh, as our public spaces this is again in my view and I know I'm, I'm you know there's, there's, there's some uh, disagreement here this is a, a form of public engagement that feels a little how should we say thin to me the idea of clicktivism, right, and or you know what others called slacktivism, the idea that I can go on Facebook and and click like on a, a political message that I agree with is valuable, but I don't know that it substitutes for public engagement in protest and in other uh, modes that I think our policymakers really do listen to. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. I, I enjoyed the book a lot. Um, Tony's book is Public Spaces, Marketplaces in the Constitution, Shopping Malls in the First Amendment. It's published by SUNY Press in 2015 and available widely. Tony, thank you so much for your time today. Such a pleasure to be here. Thank you.